0: Hello listeners, my name is Claire Connolly, and welcome to This Week in Startups Australia. It's a new year, and I am your new co-host, Mark Pesci, very generously invited to join him in the studio. So we'll be with you here for the next 12 months to try and make sense of this wild, wild west that is Startups in Australia. We're starting the year off with a bang, interviewing Paul Shetler, formerly of the Digital Transformation Office, or what we now call the DTA. Paul and I discuss the role of government in digital transformation and takes us through a few of the lessons we all must learn about sustaining our own ideas boom.
1: This Week in Startups Australia is proudly sponsored by API Days, Australia's largest conference dedicated to the business and technology of APIs. Twista is also sponsored by Spaceship, where you can invest your super in the tech companies you know and love. Find out more at Spaceship.com.au.
0: Today on the show, we have Paul Shetler, formerly of the DTO, the Digital Transformation Office. We are so happy to have him on the couch this afternoon. Thank you for joining us.
2: Thanks, Claire. Great to be here.
0: So we're going to have a little bit of a state of the union about the state of startups and digital transformation in Australia. It's been about, give or take, two years-ish since we first started to hear things like innovation and ideas boom, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the last, let's say 18 months or so, you know, there's been a lot of uh, different startups clawing for government attention and for press coverage. But there's this idea that maybe um, the availability of capital isn't quite what it was maybe even six months ago. Mm. I'd love to get your perspective on this.
2: Um, I think it's an interesting thing. So, I mean, definitely you're hearing a little bit less, I think, in terms of... In terms of buzz, a little bit. I don't think that's an unhealthy thing. Actually, I think it's actually quite a good thing in many ways because that means there's less froth. Uh, it means it's uh, it's a bit more real. Um, I think in terms of whether the you know looking at the government and what is the government going to do, um, I, I wouldn't be so concerned about that. Actually, to me, that's not the most important thing. Actually, I think the most important thing is um, culturally. You know, do we have people who actually, you know, have a vision uh, who are, who want to then go to MAP for that, who really um, see an opportunity and say, wow, this is a great opportunity. I want want to take this forward, right? Um, And I want to go and I want to win. Um, And we're winning and taking ideas forward and and, and doing so is a good thing. Um, I think that's massively important. Um, And you don't need government for that. Actually, I don't, I just think government is not required for that. Government can help, uh, it can get in the way, but at the end of the day, really, it's not going to make the difference.
0: Why is it, do you think, over the last few years, that there seems to have been this idea that maybe the startup industry needed more government attention than your standard business or company? Why do, well, first of all, do startups need or deserve special treatment? If they have been getting it, is that sort of creating a bit of a cocoon from them that's protecting them from market forces? And do we need to kind of get over this over-reliance on legislation or regulation to make a startup into a proper business?
2: Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I mean, it's something which I've thought about quite a bit since I've been here because I've noticed an awful lot of discussion about, you know, how the government needs to foster the growth of a startup sector and so on and so forth. And, you know, it's undeniably the case that if you look at the United States, you can sort of see that there was a huge amount of technology spending by government in military and defense, which of course, you know, led to lots of companies starting up and so on and so forth. So there was demand, there was a customer, you know, there was, and there were people who were sort of going through all that machinery, uh, who had skills and had ideas and said, well, I can do something else with it as well. So you had the sort of way of creating this whole ecosystem off the back of that, but to some extent at least, at least what struck me in Australia was the idea that it would be largely the creation of a government policy and I, I don't again I don't really think that's the case um, I think if I look back at if I look back at London if I look back at the United States um, you know government policy can make things easier it definitely can make things easier uh, but it's doesn't actually create anything by itself you know it's actually the people who have the ideas and the drive to take them to market and who are willing to take the risk and who actually have a high appetite for risk uh, that are the ones who are going to do that and even if the government doesn't make it easy if they still have that appetite for it they can still do it and they will still do it I don't think that the government thing is quite as important as I've as I've heard quite frequently here I think that's I just I just don't think so
0: how does how do the three markets compare? You've obviously, you've got a lot to compare to. You've worked in the US, you've worked in the UK, and now in Australia. Is there something that's more distinct about the Australian market or, or lessons that can be taken from other markets that maybe aren't quite as obvious here?
2: Well, if you look at, the, I think what's interesting about the United Kingdom was, um, so I used to live in Shoreditch. I moved there in 2006 uh, before the GFC. So back, that was when it was still relatively crusty. Uh, and most of the people I knew there were musicians and, and DJs and people like that. Um, And what was really fascinating was sort of the boom of the startup sector there was how you had a collision of different cultures, you know, because it was right at the very edge of the city of London. In fact, when I first moved to London in 2002, whenever I went out to Silicon Roundabout, as it's now called, it was to meet with small risk management companies who were doing stuff for the city. Right? And these were relatively small companies who were doing stuff for the financial sector. Uh, but then you also had like a huge amount of musicians who are working in electronic music. You had a lot of people who were doing interesting stuff with data. Um, you had people who were doing you know graphics in that area. And you sort of had a whole, a whole confluence of different skills and cultures all appearing in a really tight space at a time of economic crisis. And people are talking to each other. They're going to the same pubs. They're going to the same bars. They're going to the same restaurants. They're hearing each other's conversations and ideas are popping up you know you talk about an ideas boom i mean that's actually how it happens right it's not created by policy it's created by material circumstances and the material circumstance there was you had an awful lot of creative intelligent and ambitious people um, who had either been displaced or who were seeing new opportunities in a very tight space and they were seeing each other all the time and a whole bunch of stuff happened as a result of that and i think that's a really important thing uh, whenever you talk about the development of the startup sector. Uh, same thing really happened in the Silicon Valley, right? It was very, very similar kind of thing. I think in Australia, what struck me a little bit was just that um, it's a bit more dispersed. You just don't have the same concentration. Shortage is really small, you know? San Jose is not big. Um, here it's a bit more spread out, so it's hard to get that same level of intensity, which is one of the reasons why things like you know, fish burners a stone and chalk, and so on and so forth, are so important because they create that concentration.
0: Speaking of geography, you know, there are about, let's say, give or take between seven and eight million Australians that do not live in a capital city and who either are unemployed or underemployed, or just there's another million that just aren't counted towards unemployment statistics at all, simply because they either haven't started a job in the last four weeks or they cannot begin one within the next week and so they neither sit in underemployed or unemployment statistics. Mm -hmm. How important, you know, about a year ago maybe two, you know, Malcolm Turnbull was discussing the benefits of having a hub say in Sydney or Melbourne, versus trying to create some kind of ecosystem that actually takes advantage of geography. Now, that never really came to fruition. And as you say, it doesn't have to be through government. But in what way can the startup sector actually address Australian unemployment and also economic insecurity?
2: I think that's a really tough question. Um, You see the same thing in the United States. I mean, that was one of the big issues in the presidential campaign, was that although the official unemployment numbers were X, numbers of people who had just given up looking for work were so much higher and they just weren't being counted so it gave you a very misleading you know conception about prosperity and the distribution of wealth in a country again i've what i've seen is uh geographical concentration tends to work Uh, it's just sort of the dynamic for how you get ideas out there and, um, and multiple different points of view on something, frankly, you know, even at, you know, in DTO, we also used to talk about, you know, building multifunctional teams for the simple reason that everybody brings a different perspective. You have a researcher, you have a designer, you have a dev, you have a web office engineer, a product manager, delivery manager. They're going to look at the exact same problem from a number of different points of view. And it's the same thing sort of, it's the same thing really in the same ecosystem.
1: Mm.
2: Um, I think it is a real problem. I think it's a real problem. Australia's got a, a relatively low population, it's got a uh, very widely dispersed and relatively shallow a digital talent pool, and I think a lot of times when we talk about startups, I just tend to think of, I tend to think of digital when I think of startups, right? I mean, um, it's that's not really strictly speaking correct because any company that's starting up is a startup, but when we think about what's really important for the future of Australia to be able to compete on the world stage, it's going to be those digital industries, right? Those are going to be the ones that to take us forward. Um, I think the biggest, one of the biggest problems we have is just a lack of skills. It's a lack of digital skills. We don't, you know, we don't have a lot of digital product managers in Australia. It's not, it's not a widely known profession. You know, in London, you would find quite a few and it made my life a lot easier. When I was working in government, they were almost on tap. There were so many really good ones, lots of conferences, lots of a strong community. It was very difficult when I first came here to find people with those skill sets. Um, I think, so I think that's the thing to really focus on, is building up the digital skills.
0: That was actually going to be my next question for you. You know, I was uh, talking to um, a development expert who kind of has toured different factories across rural and regional Australia, and, you know, he related this story of this guy who was just working in a factory that made springs for trains and mattresses and other Stuff where springs are needed. Um, And he said, you know, do you know how difficult it is to just train a guy to look at a dial and write down that number on a piece of paper? How are we supposed to know if the batches are working correctly? How are we supposed to know if the machines are overheating? How are we supposed to know if we're meeting our production targets if we cannot have a staff that have skills that are transferable and, and that are properly trained right? Now... You know, over the last two years, we've had these big discussions with the likes of Atlassian Mm -hmm. and startups, although I I would very much question if you would consider Atlassian still a startup at this stage. (laughs) But, you know, they've been pushing really hard to have more migration into Australia simply because they cannot get the skills and the pool of skills that they need to recruit locally. I guess what I'm saying is we have 8 million people who want to work and who have the ability to work if only someone would actually give them the time of day to get training. What How do does startups and what do industry need to do to be able to source local talent before we start looking abroad?
2: I fully agree. I think that's a, that's a huge issue uh, and it will wind up becoming a political issue if it's not actually addressed. You can't try to solve your, your capacity and your capability issues uh, by ignoring uh, your native population, basically. Um, again, l- unless you want to wind up having Brexits and Trumps and everything else all over the place, you have to address that. I mean, that was one of the root causes of what you're seeing in world politics now. Um, that is one area where some of the, the non-profit sector as well as government um, can and probably should be involved in helping to develop those skills, right? You have organizations like Code for Australia and others who are trying to sort of train people up. Um, And I do think, frankly, that that's one area where government could probably do a huge amount of good would be in training people like that as well. I think it's difficult to say that the startup sector is going to be able to do that because of the competitive pressures when you're a startup. When you're a startup, you know, the most important thing for you is to get the product out the door and to sell it and to keep on evolving it and everything else. So it's difficult for the startup itself to do that. Uh, it might be easier for an accelerator or a hub or something like that to do that. And uh, So I think we need to sort of think about who would do these things. But I think it is quite important to do that.
0: We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back.
1: Hi, this is Mark Pesci. I'm really pleased to welcome back API Days Australia as a sponsor. API Days brings together business leaders, entrepreneurs, and technologists to collaborate around the building of business models for the 21st century, business models built using APIs. API Days is unique because it covers both the why and the how of digital business, with tracks focusing on business strategies as well as technology and implementation. APIs are the future for every business that wants to innovate, grow, and compete in the connected century, and API Days is the event where you learn how. It's happening at the brand new and really quite beautiful Sydney Convention Centre on February 28th and March 1st. Find out more at au.apidays.io slash twista.
0: And we're back. We've, we've been to the bathroom. We've had a cold beer. It's about 40 degrees in Sydney today, so just bear with us, listeners. We're going to return to our chat with Paul Shetler in a moment. Paul. Is it possible to have a digital transformation in the private sector without having a digital transformation in the government sector?
2: Yes, I think it's quite possible. I think if you look at, uh, if you look at, uh, it's it's already happening, right? It's already happening. It's happening in lots of countries and uh, all over the place. I think it is a lot better if the government does it itself because in many ways, and this might sound paradoxical, but in many ways, the government's best place to do that because the government can actually take some of the ideas about user-centered design and agility and so on and so forth and actually really do them for real. So if you look at the work that we did in the UK, we were really proud of the fact, and we got some brilliant talent because a lot of times in the private sector, not always, yeah. but sometimes in the private sector, people say, we really care about our customers, customers first, you know, we're gonna focus on user needs and this and that, actually, not necessarily, not necessarily, right? Sometimes there's a bit of dark UX going on there to actually get the customer to do something which might not even necessarily be right what you want them to do, but what they should be doing. Um, we were able to get people who were brilliant designers, brilliant coders, brilliant product managers who really did want to develop things for the user, that were the best things for the user, that wanted to develop things in a lean way and in an agile way, not sort of this broken, you know, half half agile, half waterfallish way where somebody does some, uh, you know, somebody does some designs and then hands them off with some coders and their job is done. You know, we melded them all together in a team. Now that was unusual even for the UK. And it was government that did that. What we then saw was a lot of people working in government took the same methodologies in the same ways we worked there and brought them back into the private sector. So I think it's actually a really helpful thing to actually have government doing best practice and showing how to really do digital, how to really do it at pace, how to do it inexpensively, and how to really meet user needs. And then those people who are going to go through government can then go back into the private sector. And I think actually that would be really helpful in Australia. Like I mentioned earlier, sort of the, the talent pool and the sort of the methodologies that are in use it would be really helpful to sort of kickstart things
0: i mean what we've seen in the australian public sector maybe doesn't i think it would be generous to say it doesn't necessarily reflect that agility while well, we've seen a lot of buzzwords and you, you've talked br- briefly about in the private sector maybe there's ux that encourages people to do things that are maybe not necessarily in their best interest i mean the first thing that comes to mind for me is paying debt that i don't owe if i was somebody that used the centrelink system Mm. um you know without getting into specifics what lessons do we need to skill up in in the public sector to be able to take those skills and put them in the private sector
2: well look i i think you know you need to also look at some of the good stuff that's happened. I know this is going to sound a horrible thing, but but it's true, right? So you look at DTO, now DTA, did some great work. You know, we did six exemplars, six digital, six digital exemplars. Those are all done in about twenty weeks. They're beautifully designed. They were very inexpensive. You know, we did a digital marketplace, which is expanding. You know, which has more and more people coming onto it, which makes it very easy for startups to do business with government. Uh, and I was just at a meeting the other day where a number of people in the private sector were talking about how slow it is for them to go through the tendering process, how difficult it is for them to get things done, how hard it is for them to work with startups. And I said, well, you know, why don't you consider using, you know, using something like the DTA marketplace? Because, you know, now somebody in government can just get somebody very, very quickly. And we do work with startups. You know, we are priming that pump. So I think there's, a you know, so there's great examples actually of stuff that has happened in, in, in government. Um, so it's not all, it's not all one way, you know, um, and I think the way to sort of keep that going is to, uh, you know, obviously keep DTA going, um, and have teams like that sort of spreading throughout all of government. Now in, in the UK, initially there was GDS and they were operating on a cabinet office. And as part of this general cleaning up of the whole digital estate, we had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of websites. Almost as many as Australia. Australia has, I think, over 2,200 at the federal level now, which is insane, right? I mean, how do you find what you need to do uh, when you need to do it? You can't, you can't get it from government. Um, and to do that kind of transfer, to do, that, to, do the, to do that cleanup, there were digital teams formed in every department. Those teams first did the migration, and then they said, wow, we have all these services we're offering to the public. Let's fix them. And let's fix them using the same methodologies. Let's fix them using the same approach. So all across the British government, you, see, you started seeing product managers. You never saw those in government before. You started seeing user researchers. You never saw user researchers in government before. You, know, you never saw people actually doing that kind of thing. And it was done at scale. And it's still being done at scale. It hasn't stopped. It's just picked up pace. It just keeps on getting bigger and bigger. And those people, of course, after in cabinet office, a tour of duties are usually about two years once you've done that, they go elsewhere. So Mike Bracken and a lot of his coworkers have gone out to co-op, for instance, you know. Others have gone to other places and they've taken those lessons, It's sort of what I said earlier. You know, it's a way of sort of seeding best practice, growing the best practice, and then spreading it out. And I think, I do think, I do think that that will happen in Australia.
0: I'm not familiar with how um, coming up with a concept for a digital transformation idea would work when you're in government. Does the government have the capacity to commercialize their ideas? Is that already happening? And can that happen more than it is already, if it is indeed happening at all?
2: Well, government does charge for certain services. So I guess you can consider that commercialization. You know, Whenever government charges you for a service, it's, it's selling something in, in some ways. Um, and, that's, and that's one model. Um, so I guess the answer, simple answer is yes, it could be. Uh, and there could be more of that. Um, on the other hand, people pay taxes. And so, you know, kind of there's an expectation that when you pay tax, you're going to get something back for it. And that's kind of, um, it's kind of the reason why we used to make a distinction between customers and users. Mm -hmm. Uh, We used to always, you know, say there there aren't, the people who we work with, the people who we do stuff for in government, we didn't call them our customers because we felt that was patronizing. And the reason we felt it was patronizing was because they didn't have a choice. They really had no choice they had to go to government because only government offered that service and so therefore it wasn't the commercial sort of contractual thing we were doing with them it was really more of an ethical obligation they would already paid for it we had to deliver the best possible thing and we, we framed things in those terms whereas in the private sector you know somebody always can walk away and say well i don't like this kind of beer i'm gonna get another one and there are so many different kinds right you can't do that with government you've only got one choice and that's government
0: so say i don't know let's say you build a database that manages things for, um, let's say, uh, land and property and, and house uh, blueprints and all that kind of stuff. And you built some kind of fandangled amazing database yeah. and... Okay, you might have a client or a customer that that is essentially for, but what would stop the department from taking the skeleton code of that and re-implementing it either as like a consumer piece of technology or selling it to a private sector to, to give it a broader use case? Would that create contractual conflicts? Would that provide more revenue for the government to do other important stuff
2: with? Well, typically when people talk about doing things like that, they they sort of spin things off. In the UK, they would sort of mutual, they they looked at mutualizing things sometimes Mm -hmm. and saying, wow, you know, we're going to spin this off as a separate company. So the land registry, for instance, or something like that is being a really great example of that. And I think actually in Australia, there have been similar discussions and similar, similar uh, things happening with with, with things like land registry. So so those definitely can happen. Uh, And those are cases where, you know, there's clearly a market for a service. Um, and where if you know if it makes sense for the government to do that in terms of you know what it's getting for it in terms of its value uh, versus risk and so on then, then maybe it wants to do that.
0: Has somebody crunched the numbers on the revenue opportunities of those kinds of ideas?
2: I don't think it's been any kind of comprehensive look at that. No. Right. I think in a lot of cases what winds up happening and again i you know not really necessarily qualified to speak on all these things but of course. Um, I think usually what winds up happening in, in cases like that is at least in the UK was people who were actually doing the work who realized wow, this could be spun off, this could be mutualized. Um, We could do that. And then there was a case made for that.
0: Can we talk about, let's sort of jump around a little bit off the government sector for a second um, and just talk a little bit more about startups slash, let's just say the tech industry generally, because as you say, not all startups are tech and not all tech are startups, but let's just create a broad space for discussion. Awesome. Can we talk about some of, I don't know, maybe some of the the lessons or misconceptions that have been sort of widely held within the market that we can maybe do away with in 2017? Is there anything that comes to mind?
2: I think, well, look, one thing I, one thing I said recently, uh, cause I was talking with somebody from, I was talking with, um, somebody from AFR. I said, I felt that there was a huge amount of emphasis on collaboration, uh, which is, you know, important. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not denying that that's an important part of what, what happens. You know, obviously things like this, like fish burners depend on that. Um, but I've, not heard much I've not heard enough in my view about competition right that it's almost sometimes viewed as like a bad thing to talk about but actually um it's it's you know it is it is kind of the rule of a marketplace it's Darwinian um that you know you either you either survive or you get eaten by somebody else right and that's really just how it works uh that's the nature of the capitalist system that we live in um and that is competitive that is a competitive process I think one of the biggest concerns I have um, is that there's not, there's not enough emphasis on the competitive aspect of what we need to do here. It, there's a lot on the collaborative aspect, which I think to some extent, to some extent uh, is also a result of sort of the industrial policy and the competition policy we've had, which has sort of fostered oligopolistic industries, which makes it really difficult, makes it really difficult to have a competitive startup sector, because actually a lot of the startups want to knock those incumbents off, right? and that's, that's competitive. But if competition is not really viewed as a great thing, then that's really great for the incumbents because they won't be knocked off their pedestals.
0: There does seem to be a bit of a culture of sort of legitimized antitrust going on in Australia. Like you say, we talk a lot about collaboration and I don't think we hear anywhere near as much, just the word competition as you would in the US or the UK. No. What does that do for the market when companies have the ability to collaborate by eliminating all the things that make doing business difficult? Is that creating like a sort of petri dish or, or a dome where you're sort of protected from all of these market forces? By- I do think
2: it does. I think it creates a cocoon, right? I think it creates a cocoon, which ultimately won't last because, um, you know, when there's a breach in that, when that cocoon is breached, uh, there's nothing to defend you. You don't. You don't have the natural impulses then. You don't have the natural reactions then. Um, one of the things that I think about, you know, up until now, or up until very soon. Um, Amazon isn't really existing in, in here, right? So people don't really talk about, oh, what, what, what will be the effect of Amazon? Oh, let's just keep our retail sector the way it is. Oh, that's cool, everything is fine, you know? And I've heard, i read some interviews recently where people were saying, oh, everything is great. And it sort of reminded me of the, you know, the diagram of the, of the, of the dog in the burning house. You know, <laughs> this saying is this fine. is fine, saying this is fine. <laughs> and I'm thinking, well, what, you know, it really won't be fine once Amazon comes here and opens up Prime. You know, they, the, Amazon is one of those companies that is sort of red in tooth and claw. Uh, and they are a killing machine they are. I mean anyone who has seen uh, the effect that they've had in the United States on the retail market will tell you that and I just wonder you know what will be the effect in Australia when these things happen. This is one of the reasons why I've been saying I think it's really important to start um, building up in the psyche of people that actually competition is a good thing too. Um, And you you do need to be sometimes aggressive. You do need to sometimes be competitive because if you won't, other people still will be, you know, Leon Trotsky said, you know, you might not be interested in war, but war is interested in you, (laughs) you know, and it's one of those type things you can sort of say, well, you can close your eyes, but actually it's out there.
0: This brings up so many questions for me. So, I mean, Amazon's kind of got two or three claws out. There's, cloud, which I imagine is going to be an increasingly competitive space, and then there's retail. Now, what if something like Amazon Dash becomes more broadly available here and Australians can order something locally at the click of a button and have it delivered to their house within three hours? Are you expecting to see a pushback from the retail market to try and block Amazon from having entry at all into this space?
2: There may very well try to be a pushback, but I think you know once the problem is once people sort of see what you can do with that, it's really hard to push back. So, for instance, look at Uber, you know, that's a great example for me. Um, you know, there was all this huge pushback. No, we don't want it. You know, there's people fighting against it, saying it's a bad thing and you can't have it. But actually, everyone has it on their phone. Right. And even when it wasn't supposed to be used. People still had it on their phone and they were still using it. And, and it was kind of audacious, to say the least, of Uber, the way they treated uh, regulation. I was really kind of surprised by that, um, but they did, right? And I think that that's, you know, once people understand what they're going to get for that, it's very difficult uh, to, to keep entrants out. And I think that's that's what's going to happen.
0: What, what would it take to keep an a, a competitor out? Does that happen at a government level? Does that happen with private sector pushing back? What, there's there's lots of the different lever? ways. There's
2: lots of different ways to put a barriers to entry. Uh-huh. You know, you do licensing, you can do legislation, you can do all kinds of things, all the classic things that people do. Um, you can, you know, branding is is, is a, an attempt to sort of, you know, decommodify what you offer and to make pretend it's something unique. Um, but generally speaking, what I think would wind up happening in this particular case is that, people would probably go running to government, you know, which I, again, which is what i was saying kind of like all the way throughout this whole thing. I don't think government is the answer to most of these things.
0: Can we just talk about cloud for a second? We had a, a number of, um, let's say, acts of God that created a series of problems at a series of different databases across Australia that were meant mm-hmm. to be providing cloud services, that were meant to have backup and redundancy systems in the event of, you know, crazy acts of weather that didn't activate when it was supposed to. And therefore, you know, a lot of different users, including government, but also in the private sector, were left either offline or or without any kind of database for weeks at a time. What happens when Amazon Web Service becomes a really competitive player? Because they're already in the Australian market. But I, I kind of, I'm at a loss to understand why more people don't use it for a start. But what happens when it really ramps up its cloud offering in Australia?
2: It'll be a great thing. It'll be a really wonderful thing. It'll be a really wonderful thing. I mean, Amazon, Microsoft, and Google all have brilliant cloud services. Um, and if you look at like, you know, who's, you know, we, who, where are all the Intel chips going? Where are all, the, they're, they're going to those three those three companies. You know, they're not going to computer manufacturers anymore. Those guys make all their own, they make they make everything. And they, all, all the computing capacity, basically worldwide now is being consumed by by the cloud providers. Um, and it's because they exist that, all of it, that you could have all these startups. You know, when I started my companies up in London, if I had had to actually buy servers and if I had actually had to buy Sun licenses, and if I had to buy Oracle licenses and Microsoft licenses and this and that, that would have been a huge capital expenditure that I just couldn't afford, right? I was able to actually take risks because I didn't have to do all that. I could actually just spin up some instances on Amazon uh, and pay really low prices, basically, um, on Amazon and Heroku for what I wanted to do. Um, and I could spend all the rest of my time and all the rest of my money doing user research and design and development, right? So it, beca- it lowered the barriers to entry tremendously. So we were talking about earlier about you know, competing and, and, and market forces and, and oligopoly. What cloud does is it, it really lowers the barriers to entry. It makes it a lot easier for people who have interesting ideas to really think those ideas through and to, you know, and, to, and to test them and to experiment. It doesn't cost much to experiment. It costs hardly anything to experiment. So you actually can do that. You can reduce all your cycles. You can do things much more quickly and much more cheaply. So I think, think it would be a brilliant thing.
0: How many public services in Australia do not use cloud currently and who are still running their own databases?
2: Well, the vast majority.
0: Isn't, in your opinion, should that be run in the
1: cloud?
2: Well, the thing is, you, it's sort of difficult to take existing workloads and just dump them into the cloud mm. uh, just because of what they're on and everything else. You can actually you know, move an awful lot to the cloud. You can migrate an awful lot to the cloud. It's just not something you do with the flick of your fingers. Mm. But new services in particular, um, I find it weird that anybody would be developing a new service and not putting it on the cloud. I just find that bizarre. Um, I've always felt if you know if you had to have a data center policy, uh, this very simplest policy is uh, don't build anymore, and migrate your existing workloads to the cloud wherever possible. That seems to be the best policy for data centers, uh, because they 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 enforce really poor ways of working. Mm-hmm. Data centers do. I mean, you know, you know situations where you have to wait six months between release cycles versus doing hundreds of releases a day. You know, what's more risky? Well, obviously, waiting six months. Right? and having this weird testing regime, which will probably never catch everything. You know, you release things a hundred times a day, you can just roll back something instantly when it's a problem. Your, 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 your risk just goes down tremendously, and your cost goes down tremendously. So that's what we need.
0: 2016 did seem to be sort of the year of cloud migration, or at least the year when companies started realizing, oops, maybe we should do one. Yeah. Why is there still such a reliance on sort of second tier cloud providers? and where, why when we have seen that a lot of them are clearly not capable of, of backing up and of, of having the redundancy when it is most urgently required and yet particularly in the public sector continue to go back to those particular providers why <laughs> i i
2: couldn't really answer that except to say that i think that there's just you know this gets back to the question of capacity capability mm-hmm. in the public sector it's something i've been sort of banging the drum on quite a bit Um, And I know that it's not terribly popular of me to say that, but I do think that the the, the technical and digital capabilities in the public sector are relatively low compared to the private sector um, and are low compared to what you see in other countries. Uh, And I was really delighted, for instance, you know, yesterday uh, to see that, you know, the British government came out with their new government transformation strategy. It's no longer called a digital transformation strategy, it's called a government transformation strategy. Um, And one of the most important pieces of it was to really upskill the public service, right? you know, Uber don't outsource all their developments, you know, no startup outsources all of its development. They're crazy. The
0: intellectual property would be
2: huge. Exactly. You just don't do that, right? You know, Mark Andreessen says software is eating the world. What does that mean? It means that every company that is doing stuff on the internet is a software company. Government needs to realize that when we're doing our our services, we're a software company uh, and we need to have those skills. And I think that's you know, that's the, that's the question really to me. I think it's, you know, how do we get, how do we bring those skills inside? Not only government, actually, but also insurance firms, brokerages, banks, all the large institutions, hospitals, that we, that we rely on for the rest of our, you know, for our life. Those should be, because they're so important, because they're so central, those should be the ones that have the best technology, that have the best people, because they serve the most people. There and again, in many cases, there's you know it's not a huge amount of choice. Uh, so I think those are really where we want to look.
0: So let's, if we can end on one, one lesson for the people listening to to take away from this, you know, what is our lesson for two thousand and seventeen? You know, where it's February now, we're really back into the swing of things in earnest. If there's like one big mistake or, or I don't know, cultural proclivities that people have that they need to let go of, you know, what would you go out to market and tell them?
2: Well, i say a few things. So first off, you know, um, the idea that sort of, Uh, Because the government is not paying quite as much attention to, or is not, not, that's that's not fair, that's not a fair way of saying it, but because the government is not quite proclaiming things like ideas boom and so on and so forth that startups are kind of over is silly. Mm -hmm. Uh, That wasn't the reason for having startups, and that's not going to be the, that's not going to kill startups. Uh, There's material circumstances that happen, which are quite irrelevant to all of that. So I think first off, uh, the idea, you know, there's, it's as good a time to be a startup as any, uh, to paraphrase somebody, this is the most exciting time to be a startup. Uh, I think it's absolutely true, um, and that that won't stop. Uh, I think that to to do that and to be successful, you know, again, the the idea of being in it to win um, long term as well, not just to sell out immediately, but you know, if you really believe in your vision, believe in your vision, you know, take the risk and take it forward and execute on it and try to take over the world because that's really what you should be trying to do with your startup. Um, I'd say those are probably the two main things.
0: Those are two good really good questions to end on. So I think we'll we'll leave it here. Thank you so much for coming in to talk to us. We really appreciate it.
1: Thank you. Enjoyed it. Hi, this is Mark Pesci. We have a Tumblr at twistartupsaus.tumblr.com. And on there, you can find not just all of the interviews in our podcast, but photographs of our guests, links to resources, companies, all sorts of things that any startup entrepreneur or investor would want to be able to get their hands on in order to make the best decisions for their company or their investment. So go and visit our Tumblr at twistartupsaus.tumblr.com, check it out, share the link, and learn more about the great startup ecosystem here in Australia.
0: Well, we've covered a lot of ground in this interview from government to startups to the economy more broadly. Australia's startup industry is only in its infancy, but it has already changed pretty vastly, even over the last 12 to 18 months. And I think we can all agree that we still have a lot to learn and perhaps require a little more self-reliance and less focus on regulating ourselves into existence. And I might add that while we're trying to grow this industry, let's remember the value they bring to the economy and the opportunity they present to grow our knowledge and skills base. There are 7 million unemployed people living outside a major capital city in this country and there's another 1 million that are underemployed or not starting work within the next fortnight. That's 8 million opportunities for Australian businesses, and that's not even counting inner-city employment. There is a skills shortage in this country that could be addressed almost overnight if only industry could find the money to train them. We're on the edge of a new economy, and it is in our best interests to have the best educated, best skilled, and most competitive workers. We can only do that if we take more people with us. We'd like to say thank you again to API Days and Spaceship for sponsoring this episode. And thank you, as always, to Felix Warmuth and AnalogCabin.net for his hard work in creating a podcast that we hope is a joy to listen to. And thank you again to Paul Shetler for making the time to come onto our special to talk about government and industry. And in a fortnight, we'll be back in this studio with former Junior Innovation Minister Wyatt Roy for a very frank chat about life after government. We hope that you will tune in for that. This is Claire Connolly, and thank you for tuning in to This Week in Startups Australia.